welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Dominic Chicatano, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute, or ELI. ELI has partnered with Sidley Austin LLP to launch a new podcast series entitled The Enforcement Angle. Throughout this year-long series, our goal is to discuss state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. The host of this series is Justin Savage. Justin is a partner and the global co-leader of the environmental practice at Sidley Austin LLP. From 2004 to 2013, Justin served as senior counsel and a trial attorney for the Environmental Enforcement Division of the U.S. Department of Justice's Environment and Natural Resources Division. On today's episode, Justin speaks with Sam Sankar, the Senior Vice President for Programs at Earth Justice, and Stacey Geis, Managing Attorney of the California Office of Earth Justice. Earth Justice is a nonprofit public interest law organization dedicated to defending the right of people to live healthy lives on a wild and vibrant planet. Earth Justice has over 160 full-time lawyers, 14 regional offices, over 500 clients, and over 600 active litigation matters in venues ranging from state utility commissions to the U.S. Supreme Court. That makes Earth Justice the largest and most active environmental law firm in the country, with the exception of the Department of Justice where our moderator and guests have all worked. If you haven't heard of Earth Justice, that's because it really operates as a law firm. It doesn't represent itself. Instead, it represents clients ranging from big national environmental groups like Sierra Club and NRDC to community groups, Indian tribes, and local trade associations. Thank you, Justin, for coming back on for another episode of The Enforcement Angle. We're really excited to have you back with us today. Thanks, Dominic. This is Justin Savage, and welcome to this installment of the enforcement angle. We're excited to have Stacy Geis and Sam Sankar here from Earth Justice. Uh, so that folks have an understanding of both of you, tell us a little bit about your backgrounds, please. My name's Sam again, and I'm the Senior VP of Programs at Earth Justice. I came here uh, after a couple of different gigs, but but the most interestingly, maybe to your audience, uh, I used to be the head of environmental corporate environmental programs at uh, General Electric, which meant I was largely in charge of the systems that we use to maintain environmental compliance across a 350,000 person company in a whole bunch of different countries. And as you know, Justin, I used to be an attorney at the Justice Department uh, in the Environment and Natural Resources Division, and among other things, worked on the, uh, the, the investigation of the Deepwater Horizon disaster. And of course, even before that was, uh, was in private practice once upon a time, seemingly long ago. Um, and uh, with that, I'll leave it to Stacy. Um, thank you, Sam. Um, I came to Earth Justice. I've been at Earth Justice about seven years, and before that, I spent um, about 15 years of my career as a prosecutor, most of that time as a federal prosecutor, focusing on environmental crimes in particular. And before that, I was uh, five years as a circuit prosecutor, where I uh, had a pretty fun job going around the state of California doing both civil and criminal environmental enforcement. And like Sam before that, um, spent several years at a, at a big law firm in San Francisco. 
and I've been at Earth Justice ever since. And, and I think we've talked a little bit about how you came to Earth Justice, but Sam, you and Dominic gave kind of an overview, but can you elaborate really on what Earth Justice is and what it does? Sure. Uh, well, we are, as uh, the introduction talked about, we're the largest environmental law firm in the country, which is a little surprising when we, we found that out. We did a little research um, and we're a public interest law firm. We don't charge our clients any money and we represent all different kinds of clients, um, mostly uh, mostly groups of some kind, sometimes local community groups and sometimes big environmental groups tribal groups, trade associations, you name it. We have a set of goals that we're trying to accomplish through our litigation, which are largely around transitioning our economy to a clean economy, reducing the amount of pollution that happens in this, uh, in, in our country and in the world, um, protecting wild spaces and biodiversity, and increasingly really trying to achieve justice writ broadly, um, not, and through our environmental work, achieving racial justice and more social justice around this country as we begin to recognize that, that those things are so closely intertwined. Thanks, Sam. And turning to you, Stacy, you mentioned you came to Earth Justice uh, from a background as a local DA and as a career federal prosecutor. Just let our audience know, what if anything is different about enforcing the law in a public interest group compared to working for the government? Yeah, for me, it's three words, the grand jury subpoena. Um, it is uh, something I miss terribly uh, at Earth Justice and just for others. The grand jury subpoena is something that you can use in criminal proceedings to um, basically get information quickly um, and get to the truth of a matter quickly to decide whether or not um, a crime has been committed. So I say it in jest, but it is something that is very different about enforcing the law as a public interest group is you don't have the power of the government. You don't have the power to obtain information quickly. Um, and so I would be lying if I said I didn't miss that. On the other hand though, the difference and one of the reasons I came to Earth Justice is the one thing about being a prosecutor is that you come in when bad things have happened and it's reactive and you go after the bad guys, you change behaviors, you have deterrence. It's incredibly impactful work. Um, what I love about we, what we do at Earth Justice is it's broader, it's when it's more proactive. In other words, we come in when bad things have already happened, but we also come in to prevent bad things from happening whether it's a new power plant going up potentially or a really bad pipeline uh, that's gonna cause a huge amount of damage. Um, uh, and I, I enjoy that. The other thing is um, a lot of our work is centered around, whereas in my old job, I was uh, focusing on enforcement on companies and individuals who are breaking the law. Um, a lot of our work is enforcing the law or making sure agencies, federal and state and local agencies are complying with the law. Um, and there's a sort of a broader impact you can get from ensuring that a rule is properly um, created or defending an important rule or going after a rollback of a rule. Um, and so I would say that. And then lastly, I would say the difference between the two is I work much more with the actual communities impacted in this job. As a prosecutor, you don't usually get to have that kind of interaction with the community and really focus on their needs and let them lead the effort, including the remedies. And so that is something else I really um, appreciate and um, like about coming to Earth Justice and some of the differences. That's terrific. And you talk about suing the government now in your new job, but sometimes you see Earth Justice aligned as a co-plaintiff with the state or the federal government in litigation. How do you coordinate in that circumstance, given you may have deeper ties to the community or the clients and there may be a divergence of interests? So in a way, not surprising, we often 
we often do work together. And I actually, um, just this month, um, uh, uh, I'm working, we'll have cases that are going to trial shortly where we have the California Attorney General that we are doing the case together. So not surprisingly, often a threat that a community sees is the same threat that the state is um, worried about or on top of. And so um, we do often find ourselves coordinating our litigation and really, um, taking advantage of the various resources and approaches to litigation that can be brought. So yes, the, the, sometimes the interests can be divergent, and yet we also can take advantage of what we can each offer. So as I was mentioning early, earlier, the Attorney General or the U.S. Attorney's Office or the Department of Justice have an incredible amount of power, can bring the various different arguments too that the community may not bring, whether it's economic or otherwise. Whereas um, a lot of the partners who become our clients, they are bringing to the litigation really the stories, the impact, the harm. They are the ones who are impacted and they can bring that to the fore and really also what the remedies really should be because they're the ones who are the most impacted. So it can be a very nice convergence of, and it's also there's an efficiency and an effectiveness that comes with that as well. So um, we each bring different strengths um, and I think um, it is why they've been really successful. And it's certainly in the last four years uh, there were you know, dozens of cases that were being brought in conjunction with other attorney general's offices around the country, uh, just with some of the rollbacks we saw with the current, with the last administration. Yeah, and, and Stacy has hinted at this, but a lot of those cases in which we're partnered with states, at least over the last four years, have been partnering with states in suing the federal government, um, in, in California in particular, where the federal government uh, really targeted California and California's more progressive regulatory stances for attack. Um, and there are situations in which we're partnering with the federal government in actions against states. For example, in the Clean Air Act, when state implementation plans aren't sufficiently robust, we'll be in there uh, on, on that side as well. Um, and then there's defensive intervention cases, too, where, where oftentimes there's a rule making either federal or state and where industry is challenging that rule. And again, just as Stacy said, we have a perspective that we can bring in with our clients and with the data about the real world impacts that the government is awkwardly positioned, either politically or practically, to bring in. And starting with Stacy, let's, let's look at this new administration. Uh, do you have any thoughts, starting with Stacy and then maybe turning to Sam, on whether or how this administration should change its approach to environmental enforcement, really starting with civil enforcement, but also including your old backyard of criminal enforcement. How, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I do have thoughts on that, Justin, I do. Um, yes, I absolutely um, have thoughts on how they can change environmental enforcement. To me, it comes down to three things. I want them to prioritize it, I want them to fund it, and I want them to focus it. And talking when I talk about prioritizing it, I think it would be really, um, uh, Cynthia Giles, who used to be head of enforcement at EPA and, and is now, um, she, I believe she's at Harvard Law School, or at least she just generated a report out of Harvard Law School's environmental and energy law program on um, non-compliance with environmental rules. And the title is, uh, it's worse than you think. And, um, I th and so what we see right now, and this isn't, this, what we see right now is an unbelievable, um, significant non-compliance um, of, uh, of facilities anywhere from 25% to what she found was 50 to 70% of the facilities who produce the biggest health impacts are not are in serious non-compliance. And just to put context around that, that would be as if like one in, you know, one out of two of our food facilities were, you know, sending out adulterated food or one or two of our major publicly held companies were committing some type of securities violations. 
Um, and so enforcement is key. Uh, it's a key to curbing behavior, and it's something I saw in my in my old job. So I would want to see both Department of Justice prioritizing it, U.S. Attorney's offices prioritizing it. Um, uh, I'd want to see the federal and at the state level, both civil and criminal. So second, you need to fund it. That was something that is a huge issue with enforcement. It needs to be funded well, and whether that's the inspectors at EPA, whether that's the prosecutors at DOJ, whether that's um, uh, the investigators and inspectors who can do out the initial administrative inspections. Uh, resources have been cut over years, or certainly in the last four years from what I heard. And, um, and so I would say it needs to be funded better at the federal and state level, for sure. And then lastly, just focusing it. Um, and that's whether you're focusing on specific industry sectors that are showing significant noncompliance or maybe geographically based on certain communities that are being the most burdened by the health impacts of large-scale facilities. I would want to see um, both at the federal and state level, but Biden's administration in particular, coming up with really good in, uh, initiatives and then implementing them. It was something I did when I was a prosecutor for 15 years. Some of those initiatives we did, whether it was on hazardous waste nationally or certain types of pollution, had really big impacts when you put those kind of resources and, and the community or the corporations can see they're focused on this. We need to get our act together or we're going to get prosecuted, whether it's a civil enforcement action or a criminal one. Sam, any more thoughts you want to add to that? Well, I would echo and amplify uh, Stacy's thoughts. She's absolutely right about what needs to happen. What I would say is that um, the Biden administration needs to do more than go back to what the what things looked like when Joe Biden was vice president. Environmental enforcement commitment and resources have dropped off steadily, Republican and Democratic administrations alike. This is not something that is a swing when, you know, the different parties come in power. It is a systematic, honestly, there's been a systematic disregard. And Justin, you know this, those, those divisions at EPA and at DOJ are chronically, chronically understaffed, under-resourced. So this is not a, you know, like we just got to get it back to, to 2016. We're, we're really, uh, we need to see something fundamentally different. And here's why, as you know, I think, um, until until the actors out there know that there's a credible threat of enforcement, you're just not going to get the behavior change you need. And people really underestimate who haven't worked in industry just how big industry is and just how much money there is out there and just what it takes in terms of a threat to motivate behavior. There are definitely some companies that are going to go out of their way to read the laws and do everything they possibly can to comply and then some. But honestly, that's only the companies that have a lot of money and have some boards of directors that are watching closely and have a real commitment. The rest of them are, are, are motivated, at least in part, if not in most part, by, by the fear of getting caught. And the resources that we've got are so, so far below what we need to get to the credible enforcement program. And Sam, following up on what you just said, I mean, you do have a unique perspective Earth Justice, you've been a corporate compliance officer, you've been at DOJ. I mean, what, you know, I hear what you're saying about more resources in terms of specific priorities or compliance issues for enforcement. What do you think are some things that the Biden administration should watch? So sort of a descriptive thought on that. And then normatively, what are your thoughts on where uh, the administration should go? So uh, Stacy's right that there needs to be some focus in these areas, because if you're not focused, it's very easy to, to spread resources um, 
pretty thinly and not achieve impact. So the goal of the environmental enforcement program should be to achieve something, right? I have ideas for what it is that I want the the Biden administration to achieve with its enforcement program, but at least I want it to have a set of concerted changes that it's trying to bring it about. Because like I said, you're not going to be able to sue every person who's violating the law. You need to bring these cases strategically in order to motivate change in an industry or an industry sector. And in order to do that, you have to start before you pick the case by looking at the outcome that you want. You can't do it by finding a, a, an actor and then saying, we're going to go after this person. You have to back calculate from the result that you want. Um, so I would like to see this administration think about the, pre the results they want by thinking about at least three things. Number one, who are the communities that are most affected by these things? They're on the ground results that need to be achieved for people who are actually really suffering. The second is what are the synergistic effects of that enforcement? Because um, there's non-compliance everywhere in lots of industries. Some of those emissions and some of those problems have follow-on effect. If you are able to enforce the law here, are you gonna shut down a facility that really shouldn't be operating at all? And the only reason it's still operating is because it's not complying. Um, and in, in those situations, enforcement can bring about real durable change. Um, and then the third part is what is the signaling value of this industry going after um, organizations or companies where everybody else can say, well, we're not them. That was a mom and pop. That was under-resourced. That was a bad actor. That was a Chinese company. They don't do this. You need to go after the heartland of the actors so that the heartland of the actors see this as a signal. Going after mom and pops is a lot easier. It's a lot lower risk. It takes a lot less resources. And honestly, it doesn't always produce the same amount of change. And Stacey, Stacey knows more about this than, than any of us having designed these kinds of programs. I wonder what your, your perspective is on that. No, it's absolutely that. We have limited resources. You're always going to have it, even though we want more in the enforcement arena. And so it's about picking and choosing the right cases. And so, for example, especially when it came down to criminal enforcement, my message was always, if you just can go after one, of the, one, of the, one, per, one company in the industry, you will affect change around the whole industry. So I, for example, brought one of the first um, fraud cases in the organic industry and put the president of that company in federal prison with no parole. And when I was prepping for trial on that case, it was amazing how all of the organic farmers and all of the organic industry was telling me, Stacy, everybody's getting their act together because they just heard Peter maybe going to prison for a while. Um, and, and, I, and I saw that in the water pollution cases I did, the air pollution cases, all of them. And so you pick one, that's, that's the importance of criminal enforcement. And on civil enforcement, you can still really focus in on what cases, what case even is going to create the most deterrence? Because to me, that's the biggest impact is if you can get an industry to change, not just that one company. And that, that goes to the importance of criminal enforcement specifically, but uh, that's something the government and only the government can do, and it's a special responsibility. The government can't be afraid to bring criminal cases and can't be afraid to prosecute the actual individuals of the companies who've done these things, and not just the lower level folks, but the folks who bear responsibility. We made it clear, G, that everybody up the chain was responsible, and that, you know, if, if companies are saying that, then the government ought to be uh, ought to be perfectly willing to enforce it. And looking at what the Biden administration might do in terms of priorities, how do you take that and then analyze how that's different or aligned with Earth Justice's priorities so that, you know, someone used the phrase, maximize your bang for your buck, so that you as an organization feel like you're making progress? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the Biden administration has signaled um, one of the most important signals it's sent is that it's going to be um, picking its targets based on or at, at least strongly suggested that it's going to be putting a big environmental justice screen on its uh, on its choice of enforcement actions to bring. And that we not only welcome, we applaud. That is the way we think about these things as well, because if you look at the history of the way industrial development has happened in this country, it's very much concentrated the impacts of pollutions on uh, on on black and brown communities in this country, communities that have been systematically excluded from the decision making processes about where those facilities go. And once we're able to concentrate those things in one place, it's easier to disregard them because all of a sudden the people who are being affected by these by these pollutants are the same people who we've ignored in in in, in the permitting decisions as well. Um, so looking at that and really thinking from the ground up about where are these uh, impacts concentrated and who's been excluded from all the decision making up until now and then bringing the enforcement back to at the very least enforce the permitting conditions that were supposed to be there to protect those communities. That is what the Biden administration is talking about and that's what we're going to be holding them to account with. Are they, are they going after the places that really matter? Stacy, we heard from Sam and Dominic at the top that Earth Justice has many priorities, biodiversity, public health, helping disadvantaged communities. But can you give us a sense maybe on your climate change docket, what that looks like? Sure. So I, I could talk both about the organization nationally, but really use the work we do in California as sort of a sort of a benchmark. Um, and how we are approaching climate change in better justice, I would say, is really coming at it from both sides, what they often call the sort of demand side and supply side of, the, of really getting getting us to a place of getting away from our dependence on fossil fuels and appreciating it's not only um, key to our climate crisis, but it actually is key to a lot of the health problems we're experiencing in, um, in the United States. And so I often, when we talk about our fossil fuel work, it's really combining both health, the health crisis and the climate crisis that we are that we have in front of us. And a lot of our um, cases and advocacy is addressing both. So the you know so the two goals are really to do a lot of the work we can do to get to reduce demand for fossil fuels. So a ton of our work is focused on on um, renewable energy, clean energy, working in the states at the various public utilities commission, working at FERC, really doing that transformative work to get us off of fossil fuels uh, as as the focus of our energy generation. And that also includes. Um, ensuring our buildings are no longer having natural gas but are electric, that our cars, our trucks are electric. It's really electrifying the system and ensuring it's all powered by renewable energies. On the flip side is really focusing still on the supply that's out there. We still are an incredible producer of oil and gas. We have incredible um, you know, new natural gas plants that are going up on a regular basis. We still have coal plants. We produce, my state, California, is still a large producer of oil. So on the one side, we're really doing a lot of work to reduce demand by moving into this transformative clean economy. We're also though focusing on the supply side and really um, focusing on reducing extraction and production. And whether that is um, focusing on, you know, leasing of oil, oil and gas on public lands to in California, really focusing on um, addressing this issue that on the one hand, California is a climate leader and we're doing an amazing amount of work and showing how it can be done fast and it can go to scale fast. And we're really using our resources to break down the market barriers to entry for a lot of this clean tech and clean energy and clean transportation. 
Um, and yet we're also addressing the fact that we're a very large producer of oil and um, with incredible health impacts. So I would say for both California, but also for our entire organization, we really are focusing our climate change work is really focused on, um, again, getting us off of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. You know, one of the things that's worth pointing out is that there are a lot of organizations out there that do this from a primarily a policy advocacy stance where they're out mobilizing voting and maybe talking to politicians. We in virtually in the vast majority of our of our cases arise out of existing legal requirements. So, for example, in California has renewable energy standards and standards for air quality. And what we're doing is actually pointing out that we're violating those standards or not honoring the commitments that we've already put into law. So there is tailwind, huge tailwind behind these movements, both economically and legally. Economically, renewables are becoming far less expensive. Economically, the costs of the health impacts of fossil fuels are becoming astronomical. Um, this is not a matter of activism to, to push a feel-good solution. It's really just a matter of enforcing the laws so that the superior actor, the renewable energies, the higher efficiency products, those ones win because the reality is the fossil fuel industry is very powerful, very entrenched, and has created a ton of subsidies for itself. And those subsidies include putting our health as a, as a cost that they don't have to pay for. And, you know, you've, you've shared your perspective on those existing issues that you see. Where, where do you see, and starting with Stacy? U.S. climate change litigation going in the next five to ten years. Yeah, so I see. I mean, I, I think there's several questions that are being answered right now um, when it comes to climate change litigation. Um, and a lot of it from existing cases that have been that have that were started in the last several years. So I think um, one, there's going to be an answer to the question of the extent to which one can sue the federal government. Um, for climate change uh, and the climate crisis and the damage that it's wrought, and that's the um, our children's uh, trust case, which is pending now. There's a slim chance of trying to get en banc review in the Ninth Circuit. I think there's the question of the extent to which um, one can sue private parties or private entities responsible for um, on the fossil on the fossil fuel side responsible for climate a lot of this climate change. Um, and we see I think there's 23 cases now brought by municipalities and states. Um, suing Exxon and other fossil fuel companies. And a lot of that litigation, I think, is going to be right now we have uh, an issue before the Supreme Court, questions of whether it can be brought in federal or state court, um, question of uh, the political question doc, the political question doctrine, whether there's really can be remedies for what they are bringing at this time, which are really state claims, negligence, nuisance, failure to warn. Um, and then I think we're also going to see if Biden, if the Biden administration um, does what we hope they do and put in some really bold, transformative rules around climate change. Of course, we would likely see the industry coming in um, hard to challenge those rules, which could create its own set of climate litigation. And then lastly, what I'm seeing in California, and I think we may start seeing elsewhere, especially with the absence of any sort of federal leadership on climate for the last four years, is you see states and municipalities making their own efforts to say, for example, reduce extraction or production of uh, fossil fuels in their states. I think there's going to be some interesting litigation around what the legal parameters are. What are the limits, the legal limits to trying to phase out fossil fuels um, in your community or in your state? So that's another place where I see um, future potential climate change litigation. I think the future is it's all climate litigation. 
there's hardly any case that we're dealing with right now that doesn't have an intersection with climate change in some way. That's going to be increasingly true because climate is the omnipresent threat of this generation. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a, a background factor in everything. So I think when people think about climate litigation, the thing that pops into their heads is suits, these big nuisance suits and these big sort of, you know, single cases that seek to change things in a big way all at once. I also think about the utility commission cases that we've brought in tons of states around the country, which are really just saying, hey, consumers are paying for uh, gas infrastructure in these places and, it, and there's no future in gas. Well, is that a climate change case? No, it's a consumer economics and price changing case that has a big climate axis in there. And, uh, and so I would say that what's the future of climate litigation? It's all going to be climate litigation, certainly in the environmental front. Sam, following up on your thoughts and just litigation, I mean, climate is a global issue. It's known that U.S. companies can offshore production to other jurisdictions. How, how do you, when you think about a litigation strategy in the U.S., address the concern of, quote unquote, leakage of greenhouse gases to other jurisdictions? Well, two things come to mind. One is that we do a lot of work around um, export and import infrastructure. So we are not content at Earth Justice to be working to highlight the damage caused by extraction and consumption here. We're also working to stop bomb trains, which are the, the trains that are being used to substitute for pipelines in areas. Once once areas are resisting pipelines, the you know the the fuel companies are, are trying to uh, to move this stuff around by train. Those trains produce huge risks and and environmental consequences themselves. And that's that's going after export. Similarly, export terminals um, have been really opposed by the local communities because of the impacts that they've they've generated. We're gonna we've been part of those. Um, and VLCCs, uh, the big crude carriers, we're involved in that work as well. Now, if you're talking about what happens ex in other countries and how do we affect what what is happening inside those countries, we also do a fair amount of uh, what I call exporting our expertise work. We, as an American law organization, don't ourselves litigate in other countries, but we partner with other organizations that follow our model, or in most cases, are actually sort of learning from our model, because it won't surprise your listeners to know that the that the the environmental legal system that the U.S. has, in which citizens are really uh, empowered to hold the government and companies to account, is pretty rare. So, and we have 50 years of experience using that system, and uh, and so we bring that expertise to other countries, places that have similar legal structures, but perhaps not as much advanced, aren't as advanced in taking advantage of them. So, for example, South Africa and Mexico, uh, um, two countries. Uh, that we that we work with on a regular basis. Australia comes to mind as well. And we're supporting those local organizations with both technical and legal expertise to help them make the arguments. In, in turning closer to home, Stacey, you mentioned climate change is a priority on your California docket. Are there other priorities as you manage Earth Justice's California docket? Um, yes, I think one of the Things I love about working at Earth Justice in California in particular is the impact we can have because of the size of our economy um, and our markets. So, for example, um, we do a lot of work in the pesticide toxics arena because um, if we, say, challenge an unlawful pesticide registration um, in California where a majority of, say, our fruit and vegetables or a lot of our crops are, or just that our market is so large as such a large state, if I, um, that 
unlawful designation of a, of a pesticide registration can literally result in the entire pesticide being taken off the U.S. market. Um, and so a lot of the work in California is really centered around the impact we can have, not just in California, but elsewhere. We certainly do it in the sort of the, the clean energy, clean transportation front, but we're also doing it in, say, toxics, pesticides, um, other issues like that. The last thing is just that obviously, Cal not obviously, some may not know this who are listening, but California is actually a biodiversity hotspot. We have some, we have the, the most biodiversity of any state in the, in, the, in the country. And so a lot of our work is very much centered around um, um, key ecosystems and species in California, and really in particular, protecting water, since water is truly the life uh, and the, 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 need, the necessity for, for maintaining ecosystems and biodiversity. So a lot of our work is centered around really keeping a lot of the water in the rivers uh, to protect ecosystems. Uh, and for those who know California, it's quite an elaborate plumbing system and it's very complicated, but we spend a lot, we spent decades actually really working with partners uh, and communities and tribes to really um, try what we could do to keep as much water in the in the in the rivers for the protection of um, of not just the ecosystems and species but quality of life for many. Let's talk about environmental justice. Sam, do you have any thoughts on the recent criticisms of environmental groups raising environmental justice when those groups may uh, themselves lack diversity? Well, you know, it's a, it's a criticism that uh, rings true. We've uh, Earth Justice is uh, is a very different organization now than it was, say, ten years ago. In part because we've recognized some of those things and made some big strides. Um, our associate attorney ranks are over fifty percent people of color. Our senior executive ranks are over forty percent people of color. We've really worked hard at diversifying our staff. And I'll tell you, and Stacy will nod her head vigorously, diversifying your demographics are only the first step of a cultural uh, transformation into being an organization that is really capable of working well with underserved communities uh, and is a trusted and authentic partner to those communities. And that's something, as, as Stacy alluded to earlier, where we have a special um, ability and responsibility to be, uh, to be working more directly with communities than in many cases the government is able to for a variety of reasons. Um, we, uh, we, we work hard at it. Um, I was just looking at the math, over 20% of our clients are community or tribal-based clients of some kind. Um, and I think all the attorneys who work with uh, those clients would say it's incredibly rewarding um, and it is not as easy as picking up the phone and calling up your tried and true contact at the Sierra Club or the Defenders of Wildlife or whatever and saying, hey, what are we going to sue today? Where they just sort of hand it to you prepackaged. You got to, it, it takes work, it takes trust building, and it takes real case development, and it's incredibly rewarding. And, and this is really a question for both of you as lawyers, and Sam, you covered some of this. How do you build relationships in those underserved and disadvantaged communities as opposed to just walking down the street or calling up Sierra Club? How do you do that? I would say um, you, you do it by a, a word that I think Sam used earlier. You come at it as authentically as you can and you, you try and be a really true and authentic partner, which takes time. So I think the first thing is acknowledging that it takes time to build these relationships. It takes, like any relationship, it takes time to build trust. It takes time to, um, to be able to listen and really listen to what their needs are 
and what are their concerns? What are the threats that are that are really um, that they're really focused on? And their threats, the threats they're concerned about, maybe new to you, or maybe you may have not looked at it the same way. So it's really about taking that time to to build that relationship and that trust, and then and then working with them. Um, and communities and you know communities is really also about um, being there to assist them and support them and lift their voices and and use their power use you know use their not use the power they have and the knowledge they have to help build and make your advocacy better and stronger and and so um, a lot of our work is is working in coalition with communities and taking time to do that and then building advocacy which often then leads to litigation as a means and using again the power of the law to to make the change we want with our partners and with communities yeah i want to uh stacy's absolutely right and i think this notion of working in partnership is actually a tricky one um we're we're learning every day with it because it's easy to to think, okay, we're going to just go and just, it, first of all, we, we don't listen enough, step one. We don't often listen enough. And at the same time, it's always important to maintain our compass as an organization and rely on what we do know how to do, which is environmental law and environmental litigation. Um, and communities have many needs, and you have an authentic partnership when both the community and the client and the partner, are they getting the best out of us? And we are really satisfying our mission when we're working with them. That's an authentic partnership. And there's this quote that uh, is often bandied around in this from Lilla Watson, where she says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting my time. But if you've come here because your liberation is bound up in mine, then let us work together. And that's when it works is when both people are there for the same, maybe not necessarily for exactly the same reasons, but each they, they share those reasons that the project that they're working on is truly a common project. Um, and and that's that's what authentic partnership is. Thanks, Sam. And and Stacy, turning back to you, just as a on the ground litigator, former prosecutor, is environmental justice an aspirational goal? Are there actual claims that can be brought to enforce EJ? Well, I would say it's it's both it's a both and it's always going to be an aspirational goal because we can always work to do it better and I look at this as a journey that's just a continuing one but um, I would say it's also a goal that we're we're currently really trying to work towards in terms of the matters we bring the advocacy we do the cases that we bring um, we work with you know dozens and dozens of communities across the country and um, and many of the claims we bring are just rooted in environmental justice because they are rooted in going after the health impacts um, and addressing the threats that the communities are facing and it's the reason we're bringing that case or and work and, and with the community so oh i would say um we are really trying to focus our efforts even more on this community-based advocacy and community-based litigation um and working with the communities to also figure out the best way to use our resources. How can we add this value we bring as a law organization to address these threats? Um, so I would say it's it's certainly it's something we we're doing, we've been doing, and we can certainly continue to do better and um, and and with even more impact. You know, one thing uh, there's I'm sure there's a lot of your listeners who are thinking about climate and thinking about environmental justice, and I want to be clear that those things are inseparable. Um, because for a couple of reasons, one is that those very same impacts and Stacy's got teams that work almost explicitly on this issue where the impacts 
of the combustion of the fossil fuels are causing those health impacts very locally and contributing to climate problems more broadly. And the communities that are suffering from this are suffering from both axes of the problem, both the climate impacts and the pollution impacts. So uh, our president, Abby Dillon, likes to say that, that um, the communities that are on the front lines of climate change are the leaders in this. And it's not false leadership. They're the ones who are really experiencing it. So they have authentic voices around this. It's that the, so that this intersection between environmental justice and climate justice is it's real, man. It is real. And as we wind this up, any further concluding thoughts from either of you? You know, uh, you we, we talked about asking a question. We kind of we, we didn't get to. I want to say it here. Um, I think many people who are not used to dealing with environmental NGOs in a litigation context maybe have a bunch of preconceptions about who we are when we show up and when they get that complaint, what does it mean? Um, and I just want to, you know, embarrass Stacy a little bit by saying Stacy's, um, you know, the shining example of the kind of folks we like to have at Earth Justice, people who have real deep experience in the law, real experience how it works in governments and in companies. Um, and so when you see us on the other side of the table, we're, uh, we're, we're litigators first and foremost. We want to find solutions to problems. Um, and so if you see us on the other side of the V, uh, that's, that's who we are. Give us a call. Um, and we, we like to work things out as lawyers. Yeah, you know, in fact, one of the things we've seen as an organization, especially after uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has really been on the front page of everybody's consciousness, we've been working on racial justice in our program activities and in our organization well before that, but we really believe that we need to turn it up and we're doing a lot of work inside of our organization to make sure that considerations of racial justice are part of our decision making in all of our strategies, in all of our case selection, the way we work internally and the results that we're trying to see on the ground. It's a very conscious effort, and it's one that I really encourage any litigator out there to be thinking about because it is, if there's one lesson um, of learning about the, the deep um, impacts of structural racism in this country, it is that it is everywhere, and you do not have to scratch deep on any problem to find um, racism underneath it and disparate impacts on the outside of it. I think I would just add that... Um this is like a broader just observation about the, the field of environmental law and environmental lawyers. I've now had a career where I've worked, um, I've worked in private practice, um, representing and defending companies. I've worked with the government and now I've worked in a nonprofit. And one thing, and all focused around environmental law. And I will just say one thing I've always appreciated is the caliber of the attorneys that I work with. And that includes not just the attorneys, obviously, um, are at Earth Justice, which is one of the reasons I came to Earth Justice, is really because of the excellence in lawyering. And and but it's also something I experienced at, the, at Pillsbury when I was there. When I was at Department of Justice, I, I I so appreciate that I've surrounded myself in a field that has really talented environmental lawyers. And whether I'm working with them or going up against them, uh, I always have enjoyed um, just the intellectual um, uh, and high quality work. In addition to obviously trying to um, um, to accomplish something and really have an impact. So I just wanted to sort of, uh, that's just sort of a, a bigger observation as I look back at my career and those I've interacted with. Yeah, you know, and a related plug, I just have to, I can't help but say this. For if, if you're out there listening to this podcast and you're an environmental lawyer, an enforcement person, a non-enforcement person, in-house, government, whatever, and what Stacy's talking about or what I'm talking about makes you think, man, I, that's what I really wanted to do with myself in law school. That's what I really want to be doing now. 
both of us took that plunge at one point where we got out of those jobs that seemed like the the obvious thing. We looked over the fence and we decided to come. And I I know I'm speaking for Stacy when I say it's awesome here. It's fabulous. We pay more than you think we do. We do more work than you think we do. <laughs> and you should look us up. Come work at Earth Justice. It's pretty awesome. On that shameless plug, I feel like I'm in an infomercial. Thanks to Sam Sankar and Stacy, you guys. And let me say this. We're at a point in our country where we have never been more divided. We don't listen to each other. We literally attack each other and the institutions, the government. And part of the way to heal that is to actually shut up and listen. So some people listening to this podcast are going to fip, pump their fists and say hooray. Others are going to be angry because we have a wide variety of perspectives on this. And my point to you is try to listen. That's the first step to all coming together. So thanks for joining the Enforcement Angle. Thank you, Stacy and Sam. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.